On the 22nd of May 1998, a month after the multi-party talks concluded and the Good Friday Agreement had been signed, the people of Ireland, North and South, voted yes. Yes, 71.12%. Within months, the peace we had fought so hard to secure was jeopardised in the town of Oma as the single biggest atrocity in the history of the Troubles occurred on the 15th of August 1998. In this episode, we track the highs and the lows of these crucial four months after the talks had ended. That's a matter of, I think, getting political action, moving on, trying to ensure that the great expectation which people have in their hearts is not reduced by what has happened here. I'm Bertie Hearn, Taoiseach of Ireland from 1997 until 2008, and this is the story of the Good Friday Agreement as I remember it. Episode 7 Two Days The worry was would we get it past the Unionist people? The Nationalist Republican vote was there and, you know, they knew how to sell it. They sold the gains and unfortunately the Unionists were selling the pains. The Northern Ireland Women's Coalition campaigned vigorously for a yes vote in the May 1998 referendum as Monica McWilliams recalls. It was parties like ours and others who said the Anglo-Irish agreement is gone. It has been replaced by an agreement in which you, the unionists, have been involved and directly negotiated and your stamp is on this agreement. And I I suppose it never did Ulster Unionists any favours that it was the Women's Coalition that were out promoting uh, the things that they had managed to achieve. Um, But it was a tough, tough, tough six weeks and very worrying because the anti-agreement side had already prepared and it was easy to say no. And everywhere we seemed to be going, there was posters and banners and regalia saying no. It's easy to say no, as you know, if you've got children and and you're in a relationship, it's much harder to explain why. And that's what we were doing. We borrowed a double, well, we paid for a double-decker bus, took our kids on it and went round every village and town with loudspeakers. And, and actually, we came up against... I remember getting a stick put in my face like as if it was a gun and the young fellow shouting bang, saying you should be dead. And some people were very upset about prisoner releases or that we hadn't done enough for victims. And all I can say is thank God there was a paragraph on victims in the Good Friday Agreement because otherwise people are saying this is a terrorist charter. What have you done for me? Um, so those were tough six weeks and when I looked around I couldn't see the bigger parties whether they were back in their offices preparing for governance which was maybe a good thing because they must have assumed we were going to get through the referendum or David Trimble hugged too many of his own party in his face rather than at his back and he did by then I think the majority of the Westminster MPs were against him and people probably forget that that's the moment when a leader is under huge stress and it didn't help that there was these then these big Ulster Hall rallies where loyalist prisoners spoke. And then they had the Balkan Street 
guys in the Republican rally here in Dublin. Well, that doesn't help a middle class, as they call it, garden estate um, voter and who would be watching that and saying, I'm supposed to say yes. But we swung it. And what happened was, in my book, was again civil society stood up. The doctors came out of their hospitals and said, never again do I want to be stitching people up. Um, the teacher said, I want my kids to be able to come to school safely or not stand at the funerals of families being buried. Um, and they, and loads and loads of people whose voices you probably couldn't have heard during the peace negotiations now had their moment. And to me, that, that swung it. Um, and things then swung back. It was a roller coaster. One day you thought, we're getting there. The next day it went, whoo. Oh, whack uh, whack a ball every day there was another new issue and so you can imagine how we cheered when the chief electoral officer declared 71% in favour of the agreement but of course as we probably know now the hard work started then One of the unionist parties that did campaign for a yes vote was the progressive unionist party the PUP here's Don Purvis there was, of course, the community campaign for the referendum, the Yes campaign that was headed by Quentin Oliver and, and, and others. The Women's Coalition joined that um, campaign. Um, the PUP was, of course, running its own Yes campaign. The Ulster Unionists were to some extent. We started to organise meetings within the community um, where we had panel discussions with members of the DUP who were totally opposed to the agreement, but we thought it important to take them on within the community. And what I think became obvious early on was one, the DUP had not read the Good Friday Agreement. Many people within the community hadn't read it, didn't understand it, didn't know what was in it, and were reliant on politicians to tell them the truth. Now, you could laugh out loud at that, um, but that's people did really rely on their politicians telling them the truth. So we developed a presentation and went round the country just telling people this is what's in the Good Friday Agreement. You have nothing to be fearful about. It contains the principle of consent. The Irish government have negotiated away Articles 2 and 3 of the Irish Constitution. There's going to be no change in Northern Ireland's position unless the majority of people say so. This is what you're voting for. This is what we wanted all along. And in Gusty Spence's words, this is the union safe. This makes the union safe. But the DUP knew that they were losing the hearts and minds of unionism and they they turned nasty so I remember canvassing in, in Sandy Row you know a real staunch loyalist area in the heart of Belfast city centre and David Irvine and myself and a, and a crowd of PUP on one side of Sandy Row giving out yes leaflets and Paisley and some of his crew on the other side um, Paisley Jr Sammy Wilson calling us traitors Lundies, you've sold our country out, you deserve to die. Stuff like that, which was horrendous. And as I said to you before, when you're called that in a loyalist community, previously it led to murder. So that's what they were basically doing. They were calling for the PUP um, to be killed in the community, which was horrendous, absolutely horrendous. They poisoned politics within within the community. But we knew that um, we needed, we just needed to get this over the line. 
and we, we, we worked really, really hard day and night, not only amongst loyalism, you know, going to different PUP branch meetings and things like that, but wider community meetings, you know, and you, you've seen some of that. There's a famous footage where the DUP are in a, in a, an orange hall somewhere in Lisbon. And Paisley is having a, a a rant about the dangers of of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, and we shouldn't vote for it. When when loyalism turns up at the back of the hall again, you know, and saying saying you know you're wrong, you're yesterday's man. People need to know the truth about this. And there was nearly a confrontation. You know, I remember Edwin Poots going to the ed, ed, edge of the stage and saying, "Come on, big lad, you know, ready to take." take people on so it, it very nearly came to, to fisticuffs I, I think it's important that people realise because you know people looking back now might think it was a yes and a no campaign but not realising that there was such a a battle within within unionism and nihilism to, to, to win that vote absolutely so it, it, and within families yeah. as well I mean I remember going in to my local pub and I used to get this every weekend in my local pub you know people would ask me about well are you speaking to the shinners what are they like you know or or that they asked about prisoner releases or that they asked about decommissioning because they, they wanted information they wanted to know but when the Good Friday Agreement was reached you know people were were asking about the Good Friday Agreement. And families, I remember two brothers standing in the pub arguing about the Good Friday Agreement. One saying, it's the best chance we've had. And the other one saying, no, selling us out. So there was differences of opinion within families. Mm. It's a bit, a bit like Brexit now, you know, yeah. but um, really divided people but it was important that people knew exactly what was in the agreement and that's not what they were being told by by wider unionists I think the the other disappointing thing at the time was that the Ulster unionists under under David Trimble really didn't embrace it they didn't really campaign hard you know for a yes they they more or less left people to make up their own minds on it I, I certainly believe that the unionist Yes, vote would have been much larger had the Ulster Unionists campaigned more vigorously for it. And you know, I wait and I still wait when I hear those people who will simply say no to hear what the alternative is. Because the easy thing is always to reject and say no. What that man did in having the courage to come forward and negotiate a great deal and say yes to it is the sign of true political leadership and true hope for the future. I asked Tony Blair about the active part he had to play in getting the referendum passed. That surely is something worth coming to an agreement for. David Trimble, in my view, he, he, he did his best during the campaign, but I felt the Unionist Party should have been more forthright in the campaign. It, it, it left you, I had to fight the campaign in the South, but, you know, that turned out to be easy. But you had to play a very active part in the campaign in, in the North. That was a tough campaign because, you know, we, we put it to the people. A very vocal part of unionism was opposed to it. And therefore, David was particularly exposed as a, as a, the leader of the UUP. William Hague, to be fair, was the Conservative Party leader after the election became the Conservative Party leader, came and supported the, the agreement. That was important to get the Conservative Party in in, uh, in the UK on board. But we were, you know, it was a, it, it was tight. Um, and, you know, there was a, a constant drumbeat of disillusion being, you know, 
being struck by by a part of the unionist community and you know david trimble had to stand out against that now it was always difficult for him because i think you felt and and actually i felt that it would have been better if they'd gone all out in support of the agreement um because it sometimes looked as if they were almost defensive about having agreed it however it's probably easy for us to say that and it was tougher for him you know standing in the middle of it at the time a byproduct of the agreement meant that some of the smaller parties struggled to stay part of the process beyond the referendum. This is Guy McMichael, the leader of the UDP. If anything, actually, the difficulty for us as a as a party was that we we felt that probably the unionist community would support the agreement, but we also knew that we were also agreeing to something that was probably was going to write us out of the process. And I mean, the last the last kind of discussions we had in the early morning of. Um, uh, of Good Friday leading up to the agreement was around the the assembly and the electoral systems because we knew that we we knew that the UDP and the PEP you know uh, while we were I feel that we were essential uh, in terms of being part of you know bringing lo- a loyalist voice and a voice in general into the into the negotiations and and driving a process with a view to not reaching just a political agreement but to trying to resolve the conflict, that we were agreeing to something which was likely to, to lead to us not having seats in the in the assembly. Because of the electoral electoral position. Yeah. yeah. And while everyone felt that it was really important to get us there, as soon as this as soon as the negotiations ended the la- the, the last stage and it came down to airing out the, the, the last details, the big parties, all they saw was where they were going to be at the end of this mm. in terms of how many seats they're going to have in the, in the assembly. What happened was that when we came out of that, you know, we, we campaigned for the for the for the referendum. We put everything behind that, but we didn't get any seats in this. When any seats in the uh, the assembly, PEP uh, on two seats, but it was never going to be, you know, a meaningful involvement in what happened uh, thereafter. So it essentially became unanchored, yeah. you know, from the process. Of course, we had a referendum on the same day in the south, and this meant we had a plebiscite north and south on the same day for the first time since 1918. John Hume had convinced me that that's what we should do. John's argument was that for 80 years we had lived with the mandate of 1918, which allowed violence to take place. John believed that the only way of removing this was to have an all-island vote on the one day where the Good Friday Agreement would be put to the people. And the new mandate then would be one of consent, that the only change that can take place in Northern Ireland is with the consent of the people. Here's his son, John Hume Jr. I remember vividly that whole referendum campaign. You know, it was a time like no other in the North, you know. The, the sense of hope, the sense of a new beginning, the sense of, you know, this is the start of something uh, wonderful, was everywhere. It was a, a referendum campaign like no other. And, you know, the community involvement, uh, you know, the famous concert in the Waterfront Hall where himself and David Trimble took to the stage with Bono. It was, you know, it was, it, it really was a, a, a euphoric time. Um, and, you know, and it was just incredible. It goes right back again to the very early years where John felt that any agreement should be put to the public should be put to the electorate uh, for its endorsement or, or, or otherwise. This is Sean Farland of the SDLP. 
and it worked out in Northern Ireland, you had the highest turnout for any test of popular opinion when we held the referendum. And the vote in the North was very significant, nearly 72% in favor of the agreement. And likewise, down South, there was 94, 95%, I think, uh, in favor of the agreement. So it was a huge endorsement from the people of Ireland that both sides of the border voting on the same day and giving their approval and their support for the Good Friday Agreement. The key issue in the vote in the Republic of Ireland was the removals of Article 2 and 3 of the Constitution. These articles had been there since 1937 and were claiming jurisdiction over the whole island. Though they were never really used and never really as something that was likely to be used by the government, the removal was very significant. It was moving from Articles 2 and 3 to a new principle of consent. In future, the only change would ever happen by the people voting in a referendum whether Northern Ireland stayed with the British or stayed with the Republic of Ireland. One of the key people involved in this aspect of the Good Friday Agreement was my special advisor in Northern Ireland and party colleague in Fianna Fáil, Dr Martin Manser. Martin Manser had been an advisor to Charlie High, to Albert Reynolds and to myself. Martin played a key role in the negotiations, not only on the Good Friday Agreement, but also on the Downing Street Declaration. He played a very important and significant role in the constitutional change and in the drafting of what would be the new amendments into the Constitution. I think it was understood, yes, that we would have to alter the Constitution as well. As you, as you recall, the big issue, the Unionists had their problems and the SCLP had their problems, Sinn Féin had their problems, but my political problem was that I had to carry a, a party that was very sceptical of any discussion about Articles 2 and 3. And I know there had been some, you, you, you informed me, there had been some talk in, in Albert's period about, about and, and I suppose in, even in Charlie's period, I know, but I know what Charlie's views were on the, on the con, con, Constitution. Um, back even, you know, back from well, he, early he, years. He, I mean, what he said to me, I suppose in 19, because there, there, there was a, Bruton wanted to give them up unilaterally. Yeah. And we were against that. And to be fair, Dick Spring was as well, even though he was in opposition. And I mean, it was, you know, a most useful uh, negotiating tool. For starters, it allowed the, cons- if, if it was the unionists, Mm. who wanted constitutional matters discussed, the British could hardly say no. Um, uh, You see, the way Thatcher had said no back in 81 of the first sort of Hohe Thatcher Mm. talks, uh, only institutional matters, not constitutional, that, 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 that kind of opened up the and enabled us to get assurances that in the right conditions where there was uh, a majority for the first instance in the north but ultimately both sides of uh, of the border you could have a peaceful path to unity and, and undoubtedly i mean that was absolutely essential one of the things that uh, much concerned me was that that path had to be kept open yeah. in any political or peace settlement and it, it, it was we decided we wouldn't go very far. We just stuck with the Lamas position. So we worked with um, uh, seven options. This was to prevent uh, damaging leaks, and you couldn't be sure that there wouldn't be. You know, option one was to do nothing. 
and option seven was to abolish them without replacing them. And the real the real options were there in, in the were, 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 were there in the middle. And we gradually, through some consultation with some very good inputs from a different source, because I, I wanted to get the foreign affairs input, we, we got that together and we got a good formula. See, there were people out there. There was a particularly the Sunday Business Post. They were unsympathetic to what was happening, and they did publish an early draft, but it didn't cause the sort of fuss that maybe they'd mm. been hoping it would. And then, of course, you know, there were sort of, uh, you had discussions with Trimble and the unionists, and he he managed to be persuaded by one or two of his backroom people to appoint a couple of freelancers who wanted us to make far more radical changes to the constitution that we were and to substitute error for whenever yeah, Ireland yeah, appeared yeah. and all the rest of it. And uh, we had to stonewall on it. And then, of course, after the agreement um, and uh, the referendum campaign, I certainly remember being sent around uh, to do um, two or three meetings, uh, one in, 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 in North and, and, and one that went long into the night in Leash Offaly and so on, where people who had been what one might call from the sort of the harder line end of the wing, you know, they, they, they engage in debate. Mm. But, but the, the encouraging, reassuring thing that I was getting back was, well... You know, we do recognize that we have to move as well. Mm. Um, and really the result was astonishing. I mean, I'd be wrong to say that there was no opposition at all, but it was, it was remarkably muted. I mean, people essentially went with it. And ultimately, articles two and three were kind of, uh, uh, you know, a stalling mechanism of origin, at least part in the very unfair Boundary Commission award back in 1920. And of course, uh, De Valera loved this distinction, which Lamas had less time for, you know, the de jure and the de facto, mm -hmm. the ideal world there. And then you promptly cancelled it out de facto, you see, because if you like articles two and three, the original ones, quite literally contradicted it because it says we have a right to govern the whole island. But in practice, mm. um, you know, we are blocking off any attempt to do that, you know. Um, so, and I mean, ultimately, I mean, they, they, they were, uh, you know, a use, a use, useful handle for negotiation. But I mean, did we lose anything of substance? We didn't. But one of the things that I was clear about in drafting, uh, in, in being involved in the drafting of those articles is that if we had a, you know, a lot of legalese, as we tend to have with our European referendums, is, uh, you know, we'd be, we'd be in danger of having a setback. It, you know, it had got to, sort of read, 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 read well. Mm. And yes, of course, it had to be legally kosher. And nothing was agreed by cabinet that hadn't been approved by the AG's office. Mm. But um, I didn't take the view is that the AG's office should be allowed to right. sort of draft the whole thing from beginning to end, mm. because I suspected that politically that... It had to be so politically readable. It, it had to be politically readable. There hasn't been any serious controversy about them since, you know. No, uh, I think that's the big. I mean, for from our side, uh, the if you go back a little bit period before it, I mean, the the articles that were written was the big sensitivity on our side was articles two and three. People weren't too worried about 
what we'd agree on the three strands or yeah. how we'd have to deal with reform of policing. Um, but they were the core values. They, they, they were the, the articles two and three was the, was the big one. So yeah. I think it, the, the, um, the, the campaign, I mean, we, I, as you said, Martin, you did a number of those meetings around the country and, and I did a lot of them. But it, 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 I recall, I think it was in West Limerick and in Donegal, the, the questions that we got, most of the questions were actually about the constitution. But thankfully, because of the work that you did, we were able to satisfactorily answer them and we didn't lose any votes because obviously we got, we got 94% of the, of the vote. One of the side benefits, and there was a little bit of debate with foreign affairs about it is um, we put in a sub-clause in Article 3 uh, which recognised for the first time anywhere in the Constitution the existence of the diaspora. You know, people who identified with Ireland, um, you know, brought regards of whether they were citizens or not citizens. And of course, it also sort of squared the circle between two ostensibly incompatible theories, you know, the one nation theory and the two nations theory. Because you see, Trimble's argument was, why should I be labelled Irish when I'm not Irish, I'm British, etc., etc. Um, and, you know, there the, the was something, something in that, you know, the idea that um, uh, the unionists were all suffering from what the Marxists would call false consciousness. You know? um, at the same time, uh, in the words of Parnell, we didn't want to give up a single Irishman. So if you like, it, it, it recognised the entitlement of everybody to be an Irish citizen, but it didn't force them to be. And now I remember having, um, I quite enjoyed it, I suppose, but I mean, a couple of hours, tough session with Barbara de Brune on the, you know, Sinn Féin, needs to say, didn't like the changes we were making to Articles 2 and 3 and even vaguely contemplated the possibility of supporting the referendum in the North and opposing it in the South. They actually even went had so far as had posters printed. No, so we, I'm not, I remember us getting wind of that, no. that, the, um, that the posters were printed. But I, I remember saying very clearly, you know, if you attempt to do that... Uh, the media will make mincemeat of you, you know? They just love inconsistency, you know? Uh, but I remember also Adams coming to me about um, three, four weeks and sort of jabbing his finger at me and saying, is, is, uh, um, uh, what, what's proposed there is unacceptable. Do you understand? And I sort of nodded and I'm afraid... I didn't do a thing in response. We just kept going. <laughs> I actually think that's one of the undervalued jewels of the agreement is the wording in the Constitution. And I know the care that you and the Attorney General and the whole team had taken with it. This is Mark Durkin of Northern Ireland's Nationalist Party, the SDLP. We all knew there was things we wanted and we all knew that there was things that the language had to avoid. But being able to translate that into to something that would be uh, meaningful and particularly that would work in both English and yeah, Irish yeah. Uh, was going to be very, very hard. And just the care and the nuance and the genius uh, that went into that, I think, is undervalued. And I think in the context of current discussions about the possibility of constitutional change, I think a lot of focus should go on Article 3 on curating what does Article 3 mean now a generation on from the agreement, giving you light to it, because Article 3 expresses a firm will of the nation, but it doesn't impose a duty on the state, but it houses the principle uh, of consent, 
but it clearly has the firm will of the nation for uniting the people uh, of Ireland. But that's without prejudice to anybody's position, whether they support the union or United Ireland. And I think if we could move the conversation into how do we understand uh, Article 3, how do we pursue the debate around possible constitutional change in the spirit of Article 3, I think that would be a much healthier place to stand because people can go into those sort of Article 3 negotiations, uh, whether they're unionist or nationalist, uh, or if they're not decided between either option. The people have spoken with a resounding voice in the Republic of Ireland, in Northern Ireland, in the whole of the island of Ireland. Everybody has now said, you can make your argument, by words, by debate, by argument, by persuasion, but there is no place for the gun and the bomb and violence in the politics of Northern Ireland or the politics of any of the island of Ireland. All that is over and gone. So with the Good Friday Agreement passed on both sides of the border, elections then got underway for the new Northern Ireland Assembly. But only two months later, on a busy Saturday, in August 1998. A massive car bomb in Northern Ireland has killed more than 20 people, including children. It exploded in a busy shopping street in Omer, County Tyrone. About 100 people have been injured. It's the worst bomb attack in 30 years of terrorism in the province. Police have been evacuating roads around the courthouse after a telephone warning, but the bomb went off several hundred yards away in an area people were being sent towards. What happened was uh, 29 people uh, were killed, um, including a, a woman who was pregnant with twins, um, very, very near near uh, birth. Um, so, you know, that was a hor horrendous day. And what happened was the guys were told to put a bomb at a courthouse at the top of the town. And there was heavy traffic because it was a bank holiday. The guys panicked. Instead of putting the car up, where the courthouse was, they put it down at the end of the town. The warning came from others, clear the courthouse. So everybody left the one end of the village and all came down to the other end of the village and stood there, and that's where the bomb went off. A horrendous event. There's people on every road in panic and the blood covered in blood and things. The police have taken away bodies and parts of bodies and police cars and run overs and one man, he was lifted a wee boy off, and he, the wee boy had no legs. As I was going to the town, uh, I seen uh, an Ulster bus driver driving the bus, and the bus was loaded with, uh, with uh, casualties and taking them to, to the hospital. And I was on the hospital road, and uh, I seen various civilian vehicles, uh, again with casualties in them, and uh, being buried as quickly as they, were, they get through the traffic. So the smoke, and then screaming, but people you know, in shock, tears, people panicking, looking for loved ones they couldn't find, people injured, blood, it's awful. I counted at least 15 bodies. That's dead, that's not counting the injured. They had to take the injured away in buses, vans, anything that we could get at the time. What can you say about them? What can you say? If being involved in the peace process was the best part of my career, Oma broke my heart, literally broke my heart. 
Liz O'Donnell was Ireland's Minister of State for Foreign Affairs at the time. I couldn't believe after such, you know, we had, you know, the British British government had demilitarised Northern Ireland. A lot of the towns like Oma, who had been very heavily securitised for many years, everything was just relaxed. I actually passed through Oma the day before. Uh, I was coming down from Donegal, uh, where we had a holiday home. And I was coming down for Miriam O'Callaghan and Steve uh, had their first child. And I was coming down for the christening. And I drove through Oma and I saw, because at that stage you could just drive straight through Oma and there were children eating ice creams on the, you know, it was summer day, beautiful weather in the middle of the summer holidays and just a lovely, you know, peaceful town in Northern Ireland. And the following day I was at the christening uh, in Miriam's house, Miriam Steve's house, and it was full of journalists, of course, because they're journalists. All their friends are journalists. So at sort of 20 past three, all their phones started ringing at the same time. It was incredible. And it, that was the Oma bomb had just gone off. And they were all journalists who were working, you know, actively working on current affairs. So the party broke up. And that night I was on prime time talking to Miriam about the Oma bomb. But what broke my heart about it was that we thought... We didn't know who had done it. We thought it was a Republican bomb. We knew it was a Republican bomb. But we thought that all our work and all of the euphoria and all of the hope of the whole of Ireland and England, that, you know, this was over. Suddenly, you know, we were back dealing with picking up bodies. It was the biggest atrocity um, Of of the Troubles. And it was six months after we had all signed up for it. So I was totally heartbroken. I was bawling, crying for hours. I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around that we had, because I felt that we had lured people into a feeling of security, you know, we governments. Uh, And suddenly these people had just been killed on an afternoon, a sunny afternoon, you know, in the summer. So it was heartbreaking. And then it was just so long for anyone to be uh, you know, to to own up, or you know, there was all sorts of refusal to give information, and it was terrible. Tony Blair cut short his holidays. I came back from holidays. We both travelled to Oma, met with the families, met with the victims. We had to bring in emergency legislation. Here's Tony Blair again. It was a a, a, a bitter irony that the worst single atrocity happened after the agreement was concluded. But fortunately, it was, you know, it was it was not repeated, and you know that that was also a huge moment of decision for all the people concerned, because you could have had a situation in which people, particularly within the unionist community, could have said, "Well, you guys are completely naive to agree this, and um, look at look at what's happened now, and the." the loss of life, and this wouldn't have happened if you hadn't signed the Good Friday Agreement. And the remarkable thing, and we were helped by uh, President Clinton, obviously, um, you know, he and Hillary visited, and that made a, I think it, it also helped us. And David Trimble again, you know, stood up and said, well, this is not a reason to stop the process, it's a reason to make it happen. Um, Sinn Féin condemned in unequivocal terms, which was really important because, you know, as, as you know, the historical position of them, even if they disagreed with acts of violence, was was never to condemn them, but they did. And, you know, I, I really want to pay tribute as well to some of the, the families of the people who, who lost loved ones in that 
in that in that terrorist attack, you know, they I did have conversations with several of them in which they showed an almost extraordinary, unbelievable degree of commitment to us making sure that this process succeeded so that this was the last such atrocity uh, rather than what they again might easily have, have, have said which is you know you you guys have been responsible for this as a result of the the agreement you made and that was a big it's a big big moment because i have studied peace processes elsewhere in the world and of course those people that want to undermine the process they do something so terrible that the shock derails the process. And that was what that bomb was meant to do. I mean, it was literally done with the, I mean, absolutely malicious, indeed evil intent of destroying the process by the enormity of, of the, the act. And they failed. Uh, and that was just a, obviously that was a huge moment in the process. Sadly, Tragically, almost words fail you when you think about the horror that was perpetrated on Oma that uh, summer Saturday. This is Sean Farlan again. It made us feel that uh, despite the progress that we had made politically and constitutionally, that we weren't um, out of the problems caused by violence yet. Uh, it was such a, such a blow. I remember traveling down to Oma with John John Hume, so that he could visit the hospital and talk to the relatives and talk to the people of Oma generally. And the terrible sense of tragedy, of uh, what this might, uh, what effects this might have on working out the political arrangements that we had reached in the Good Friday Agreement. Mm -hmm. um, it was such a, a bitter, bitter blow. But the solidarity that was shown helped us to, I wouldn't say overcome uh, the tragedy of Oma, but at least demonstrate that we could work together. We continue working together in order to make good the promise that the Good Friday Agreement held. David Andrews was Ireland's Minister for Foreign Affairs. I wanted to go up to the funerals of the 29 plus the pregnant woman. And uh, my advisors advised me not to go up. And I always regret taking that advice. I wanted to go up. And I did go up finally, about three days after, I went to the, uh, the houses of two of the children, the parents of two of the children, to say how sorry we were and so on. But the most important thing of all was that these tragic murders, of this obscenity, didn't in any way hold up the, 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 the Good Friday Agreement. And that was how showed you how resilient the Good Friday Agreement was and is. That this huge enormity, this terrible, terrible tragedy should happen. And at the same time, the Good Friday Agreement stood up on the next episode of As I Remember It. Hi, Bertie. Hiya, Bill. Hi. How are you? Former US President Bill Clinton tells me why he became so engaged in the Northern Ireland peace process. 
I promised when I ran for president that I would appoint a special envoy and that I would seriously consider a visa for Jerry Adams. Why some in America were upset by his involvement. The State Department was in a panic that I would do this. A lot of people thought I'd lost my mind when I did it. And what impact his visits to Northern Ireland, both before and after the Good Friday Agreement, had on him. I love Ireland, and I believe you had a bigger impact on the rest of the world even than you know. As I remember it, it's a News Talk original podcast. The executive producer is Mark Simpson. Producers Jess Kelly and Sandra Honan. Sound mixing Lachlan Hart. Video producer Rory Walsh. Archive audio used in this episode was from BBC and RTE. Go to newstalk.com forward slash Good Friday Agreement for bonus material including full interviews, videos, a timeline of the peace process and a glossary of who's who in the Good Friday Agreement.